when I was <clears throat> when I was working on this talk at some points I thought well this is kind of like a Joseph talk not that I put myself in the same league uh, with him but something about it made me think of him and it seemed reminiscent of something a talk he might give but then I remembered I was teaching with him I think it was last fall at the retreat center and I in the morning I I offered a short reflection uh, after the the morning sit and it seemed just like something Joseph would say and afterwards he said to me I would never say something like that so, uh, <laughs> chances are I'm completely delighted <laughs> But anyway, I think it's going to be the first of a two-part thing, but we'll see how it goes tonight. And I'm going to begin by reading uh, the classic description of the practice of loving-kindness that's found in the suttas. At least it's one of the ones that often occurs in a number of places. One abides pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, likewise the second likewise the third, and likewise the fourth, and so above, below, around, and everywhere, and to all as to oneself, one abides pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, and without ill-will. I just find that so beautiful to all as to oneself, abundant, exalted, immeasurable. And as you all know, metta, loving kindness, is is included in as one of the the four Brahma-viharas. Brahma-vihara, divine abode, divine abiding. And it's easy to see how a quality of mind like loving kindness when it's really well-developed, would be experienced as a divine or a sublime abiding, a divine abode. It's a very beautiful state of mind. It does have this quality of being abundant and exalted and immeasurable. In the Tibetan tradition, metta and the the other three Brahma-viharas of karuna, compassion, mudita, empathetic joy, and upekka, equanimity, are called the four immeasurables. And they have a lovely way of expressing the practice. May you have happiness and the causes of happiness. May you be free of suffering and free of the causes of suffering. May you have joy and the causes of joy. May you abide in perfect equanimity free of all attachment and aversion. Sometimes I use these phrases as a practice and I, I add, may you have every kind of happiness and every possible cause of happiness. I amplify them a bit. Something about that seems to suit me to make them as good as possible. But they're beautiful wishes and they, the practices have the purpose of cultivating these wholesome and beautiful mind states. And these divine abidings, these Brahma-viharas, are conditioned states, of course. They don't represent the end of the path in any way. 
But as conditioned states go, they're not too bad. They're quite lovely. And, and in a way, you could say that they represent the expression in the world of the deepest possible wisdom and understanding. When greed and hatred and delusion are not holding sway in our minds and hearts, then these divine abodes are what we find there. They're the expression in the world of emptiness, you could say, of the understanding of emptiness in the deepest possible sense. And so our practice is, of course, to realize that which is beyond the conditioned world, beyond these conditioned kinds of states. But the practice of metta and of the other Brahma-viharas can really have a direct impact and, and really enhance our practice and the movement towards full awakening and liberation of heart. Uh, The Dalai Lama was once asked why so many people found him so irresistible, were so drawn to him. And he replied, I don't think I have especially good qualities. Oh, maybe some small things. I have a positive mind. Sometimes, of course, I do get a little irritated, but in my heart, I never blame, never think bad things about anyone, against anyone. I also try to consider others more. I believe that others are more important than me. Maybe people like me for my good heart. I think maybe that's true. I think people are drawn to him because his good heart is is what you see there. And in our lives, we may have met people who, who are like this, people who seem to somehow exemplify, to embody qualities of love and compassion and kindness and this generosity of heart. And the other night, I, I mentioned Venerable Mahagosananda, the Cambodian monk who, in his later years, lived near not too far from here, and how spending time with him was like being in a field of metta, like being bathed in light and love. Almost every winter in January, February, I spend some time in, in Upper Burma in an area called the Sagaing Hills. Some of you have been there. It's, I think, my favorite place in the world in some ways. And I help, I help with a retreat there, but I also go in great part to visit... Uh, just to visit friends, and there's the whole area is pretty much nothing but nunneries and monasteries and temples and shrines. That's it's been a practice center for a long, long time, and uh, the hills are that's all that's up there. A few, really, there's nothing else there, trees and things. But the buildings are all either a, a practice center or a temple or a shrine. And there's two uh, monks that I always go to see who I've known now for quite a long time. One of them, uh, my friends and I have nicknamed the Happy Sayadaw. And he's, I think he's 93 now. He's quite old and he's, he's just skin and bones. But I think he's the happiest being I've ever spent any time with. And he has a kind of exuberant uh, way of being. He... He loves wild, big gestures, and he's, he laughs a lot. And he has a feeling when you're with him of, 
of this great joy and happiness, but also of a deep quiet. And he's one of the kind, he's a person who for me, it's worth flying halfway around the world just to sit in the same room with him for a little while. And one of my friends once asked him, well, Saida, why are you so happy? And he said, well, I have no ill will towards anyone. There's no ill will towards you or you. He started pointing at all of this or anyone. No ill will arising in the mind stream. That's quite a nice mind to contemplate that possibility. And there's another monk. He's much younger. He's actually a, a bit younger than I am. And he's a, a very simple monk, but there's a quality in his presence of this purity of being that's very palpable. He's much quieter and more reserved than the happy Sayada, but he, there's a lot of the same kind of feeling in a way there of just deep quiet and of real um, care. He's someone, I just know that there's love there that he wishes me only the, the best and he wishes that for all beings. And it's not personal perhaps so much, but it's a wonderful field. One enters the small monastery where he, he's the abbot and it's like entering a, a field of metta. At least that's my experience there. And so when we're with people like this, they seem to relate to us as though we're in a way as though we're the most important person in the world, at least at that moment. They're totally present for us. And it's not in any way because of who we are, but just that we are at all, that we're a living being. And I think they point to a real possibility that it's actually a possibility for us to live from a place of unconditional love. This isn't just a, a sort of beautiful idea or or something that maybe you know happened in the past in mythical times or something. This is a real possibility for us. Sometimes I think we can believe that we're born with a certain amount of, of kindness or love or compassion or generosity, as though, you know, we're we come in with that so much and that's the way it is, and we will never be as loving or as kind as, as someone else, someone like one of these people. We compare ourselves with others and, and maybe we feel, well, we'll always come up short, you know, we'll never, it's just the way, it, the way it is. But the truth is that these qualities can be cultivated. They're not just something to admire in others, there's something that we can intentionally develop in our hearts and minds. You know, our hearts and our minds are malleable. There's nothing fixed or static in that. If, there's, if this was the case, then there'd be no point in coming and practicing at a place like this. And so where we place our hearts really does matter. And we can actually can cultivate these beautiful states. And they can be a great support to us in our practice. Joseph, the other night, mentioned, he read this simple refrain from the Dhammapada that speaks very directly to this. Cultivate the good, refrain from that which is harmful, and purify the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. 
And in the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha said this, cultivate the good, O bhikkhus. One can cultivate the good. If it were not possible to cultivate it, I would not ask you to do so. But as it can be done, therefore I say, cultivate the good. If this cultivation would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to do it. But as the cultivation of the good brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate the good. So the quality of metta, of loving kindness, it reflects a a simple generosity of heart that wishes well to oneself and to others. It's a mind, a heart of benevolence, of friendliness that seeks the well-being and happiness of others. And it's a, a heart that doesn't ask for anything in return. There's not any seeking of self-benefit in that wish. And it's a generosity of heart that recognizes the universal wish that all beings share to be happy, to be at ease. His Holiness the Dalai Lama takes this wish to be happy, this universal, universal wish that we all share to be happy, he takes it a step further. He says, I believe that the very purpose of life is to be happy. From the very core of our being, we desire contentment. In my own limited experience, I have found that the more we care for the happiness of others, the greater is our own sense of well-being. Cultivating a warm-hearted feeling for others automatically puts the mind at ease. It helps remove whatever fears or insecurities we may have, and it gives us the strength to cope with any obstacles we may encounter. It is the principal source of success in life. So this quality of heart, of mind, is not only compatible with the path of awakening, but it actually enhances the movement towards liberation and understanding. Metta has the characteristic, when we develop it, of, of softening the mind and the heart, increasing its flexibility, its pliability, and its spaciousness, and of putting it at ease. And as the Dalai Lama said, it's a source of strength as we cope with the obstacles and difficulties that we inevitably encounter in our lives. And when our minds and hearts are open and gentle and pliable, this can serve as the ground for clear seeing and for the arising of wisdom. There's less reactivity in the mind, in the heart. There's more patience, more ability to be with difficulties. And so in this way, it is a great source of strength and really a source of courage for us. And as we strengthen our mind and heart in this way, it allows the space for wisdom to arise. And this leads to greater clarity. Greater clarity leads to the ability to make wiser choices. And wiser choices lead to more happiness and ease for us. In the Metta Sutta, which some of you are chanting uh, with me in the afternoons, the Buddha likened the quality of Metta to a mother's love for her child in one of the stanzas. And this points to this 
incredibly patient and protective quality of Mesa, of, of Metta, just as a good mother would forbear all difficulties for the sake of her child, would, would give her life to protect her child. In the same way, one extends metta to all beings. Somewhere in, in one of the texts, it's, I think it's probably in the Visuddhimagga, there's the image of a, a mother cow with her newborn calf to illustrate the quality of metta. And probably most of us don't see cows and calves too much in our lives unless we live on a farm. One time I was living, I was actually living in a cave in the, the monastery, the small monastery I mentioned at the beginning of this talk where one of the monks lives. I was spending some weeks, I was living as a monk at that time and I was doing a retreat in a cave up there. It's said to be a cave that an arahant practiced in. And uh, as caves go, it's, it's a pretty nice cave. It's, um, it's not just a hole in the side of the hill. There's, it's quite uh, you know, a pucka cave. <laughs> even had a little balcony. <laughs> There's a long walking path and, and even indoor plumbing of a sort in there. Uh, but a cave, nevertheless. And uh, every day I would walk down to the little village of Wachet to uh, go on alms round to collect food for my meal. And I did the same route every day. That's the usual way one goes at the same time and takes the same route so people get to expect you and, and have something to offer. And uh, one day I was coming and just as I turned a, a corner, there was a, a cow standing there with a brand new baby calf that she was still cleaning. It was covered in blood and still cleaning it. It, it was just standing, but quite wobbly and obviously had been born very recently. And I, I had this sudden memory of this image and the, the caring that this cow was, was uh, offering to her, her new child there. Mm. There's a description of, of metta. It's a little bit technical in the Visuddhi Magga, but it has some good stuff. It says, loving kindness is characterized as promoting friendliness and welfare. Its natural function is to promote friendliness. It is manifested as the removal of ill will. Its proximate cause is seeing lovableness in beings and its footing is seeing with kindness. When it succeeds, it eliminates ill will. When it fails, it produces selfish affection and desire. And this quality of friendliness is expressed quite succinctly in, in this line from the Abhidhamma. And how does one abide with a heart imbued with loving kindness? Just as one would feel friendliness upon seeing a dearly beloved person, so one extends loving kindness to all beings. It's this quality of friendliness. It's very familiar to all of us. Sometimes it seems too exalted. We think of unconditional love for all beings. It seems beyond us. But these descriptions point to this quality of, of simple friendliness that one has when, when one sees a, a dear friend, a dearly beloved person. 
But sometimes when we look inside, when we look in our hearts and minds, what we notice more is the lack of metta at times. We don't see it when we look. And our hearts don't feel open and our minds don't feel pliable and spacious. And we ask, can wonder what's happening. You know, we know, we know this quality, we recognize it. We know the power of metta. Certainly we know it's the capacity of the heart. It's not something that's foreign to us, but it isn't there. We don't find it when we look. There are two very strongly conditioned forces, you could say, in the mind that function to obscure and at times to push this quality of loving kindness out of the heart. And it's important to understand these and to see how they work and how they catch us, how they affect us. And these are are classically, these are called the near and far enemies of metta. And so the near enemy is something that feels like loving kindness, feels like love. And so sometimes it fools us, it masquerades as the real thing. And this is the force of desire, of craving, of wanting in the mind. If we look at the quality of metta, the quality of loving kindness, we see that the way it manifests is as a generosity of heart. It's a gift, an offering of a loving, friendly feeling. But desire or wanting, on the other hand, manifests as as a taking in a sense. It's, there's a focus on getting something. Even could be a desire for anything. It could be a desire for fulfillment or acceptance or, or recognition or even the desire for love. There's nothing unwholesome about, about these things. Recognition and acceptance and love are good things to, to want or to have in our lives. But this desire, this wanting of something is very different from the feeling of giving or of offering that comes when we practice metta, when we cultivate and when metta is strong. Metta doesn't ask for anything in return, but desire always contains this need for getting something back. But it can be confusing because sometimes desire looks a lot like love because there's there can be a movement towards another, feeling of being drawn to someone, and there can be feelings of pleasure, of delight with both of them, the feeling of being connected. And so it can be subtle and we can be fooled in this way. But with metta, this movement towards another shows up as the simple wish for their happiness and well-being. And with desire, there's always the flavor of wanting something back. Maybe an obvious example is sometimes in, with romantic love, not always, of course, but sometimes there are conditions attached to our love. You know, I will love you if, if you love me back or if you do what I want, things like this. And so there can be a sense of of it depending on conditions or on people being a certain way. And sometimes it can easily change to ill will if 
if the conditions change or if the people don't do what we want them to do. It's this touches on this description that I read that when it fails, it produces selfish affection and desire. But it can be more subtle, it can be harder to spot at times. We might be doing a, a metta practice, a formal metta practice at some time during the day or for part or all of a retreat. And we find ourselves checking to see if it's working. You know, looking, am I getting more loving? Am I getting concentrated from this? You know, how am I doing? And there can be a subtle way that our focus is on what we're getting out of it. And it's important to remind ourselves that when we practice metta, it's, it's the practice is just in order to offer and express feelings of goodwill, of friendliness, of love, and not for what we might get out of it. And it seems a bit paradoxical because, well, we're intentionally cultivating it, so don't we want to get it and get it in there? But when we practice it, we do it for its own sake, simply as an offering. And it's out of this way of holding the practice that the cultivation actually can occur. And one clear way to distinguish between the qualities of love and desire and love and wanting is to investigate the, the different mind states that follow on from them because they ultimately take us to very different places. If we examine desire, we see that it often can lead to feelings of, of lacking or of disappointment or perhaps possessiveness, insecurity. But metta, on the other hand, leads to feelings of happiness and well-being, of contentment, sense of peace and fulfillment. And there's a boundless and limitless quality to metta that doesn't make distinctions between beings. We've all noticed, I, I'm sure, that we can actually have genuine feelings of well-wishing for all beings. That's, this can flow from us, this wish that all beings be happy, wherever they might be, every possible kind of being. But desire is always limited in its scope. It always chooses this one over that one. There's always a distinction or a preference And desire can easily, at times, easily change to ill will if the conditions change, if things don't go the way we want them to. But metta doesn't easily change to ill will precisely because it has this boundless, limitless quality and doesn't depend on people or situations or conditions being a particular way. It's flowing from this generosity of heart not tied to conditions in the world. So there's a kind of personal empowering that can come from this, from seeing this, because we can see very directly here that how we feel doesn't depend on outer conditions. We see that how we feel is really up to us in some fundamental way. It's our choice. It doesn't depend on, on others 
being a certain way or on conditions being a certain way. And we can choose to cultivate metta or to cultivate desire, and that's our choice. And so there's a great freedom and great power that comes from seeing this. And as we begin to understand our minds and hearts more and more, there's a greater strength that we find when we see that how we feel, how we are, is, is our choice. It's not so dependent on the conditions in the world. And of course, when we, when we practice metta, it's not that our desire falls away immediately. It doesn't happen that way. This is a very deeply conditioned pattern in our hearts and minds. And it doesn't just go away overnight or quickly. But we learn to recognize the difference more and more clearly and quickly. And we make the conscious choice to cultivate the wholesome quality of love, of metta. And over time, we notice something significant does begin to happen through this practice. We begin to see that we're living more and more from this space of well-wishing and kindness. It becomes less something that we're doing or practicing and more a way of being. So the other strongly conditioned power or force that obscures metta is is called the far enemy. And this doesn't resemble love at all. It's really the opposite, hatred, ill will, aversion. And ill will has the opposite effect on the mind from love. When it's present, our mind becomes hard, hardened and rigid and stiff, not open, not gentle and soft, not pliable. Ill will leads to feelings of alienation and separation and isolation. So very, very different quality there, really the opposite. So it's, it's easier to see in some ways. Nil will inversion manifests in a couple of different ways. There's a way that it manifests as a strong anger and a kind of lashing out or striking out, outwardly focused. And it can show in, in bodily actions and in speech and, and in our thoughts. This kind of ill will often arises when we think about someone who has harmed us or maybe harmed someone we care about. And so we bring this situation, we think about it, it comes to mind and, and we find anger, ill will arising. And it can happen in reaction to things that were in the past or in the moment, in the present, something occurs in the, in the moment and there can be this response of anger or even in the future, You know, something in the past can come to mind, a past hurt. But sometimes we find ourselves projecting into the future some kind of imagined harm that hasn't occurred and maybe doesn't have any basis in reality. I can remember a a number of times when I would find myself imagining some scenario where someone would be harming someone that I loved or some innocent person or or an innocent creature of some kind. And then 
I'd find myself getting quite incensed and angry about it, becoming self-righteous righteous and indignant, forgetting in that moment that the whole thing was completely fabricated. Sometimes ill will arises when there's something that is completely impersonal, but we take it personally. We take it as a, a personal affront or an attack on us. I remember seeing on television when this uh, volcano was erupting in Iceland and it shut down all the airports in Europe for a time. And so a lot of, you know, thousands of passengers are stranded because of this thing. And, and they were interviewing people or showing them and they were getting really incensed and angry and really, you know, taking it very personally as though somehow it was all directed at them. But it, it was a volcano erupting. You know, it was, the volcano wasn't trying to get them. It was doing what volcanoes do. And, and the airports were closed for their safety. They were grounding the planes to protect these people. And so it was this impersonal event in the world, but some of the people were acting as though it was all personally directed right at them. Sometimes ill will is conditioned by feelings of self-righteousness, as I mentioned. There's this feeling of being justified. You know, it's not right. Someone is harming an innocent being or acting unkindly, and they shouldn't be. And we get angry, and and sometimes it feels strong and powerful. and, And there's this feeling of justification. It can feel good to us, and we can get really caught and hooked by that that feeling of power and strength. And sometimes ill will and aversion can be inwardly focused. It has a retreating kind of quality. It's turned back on ourselves. And it leads to feelings of sorrow and resentment and grief that we hold inside. And even though it isn't outwardly focused, the result in our minds and hearts is much the same Our mind, our heart will tend to stiffen and contract when this happens. And there's feeling of isolation and separation that arises. And the feelings of love are obscured. There's something really useful, I think, in in the definition that I read uh, from the Visuddhimagga where it says the proximate cause for the arising of metta is seeing lovableness in beings. And its footing, or you could say the foundation of it, is seeing with kindness. So we're seeing lovableness in beings, and we're seeing them with kindness. And you know, we're all a mixed, we're all a mixed bag. If we look at ourselves and we look at others, you know, it's, There are things about ourselves and about others that we like and things we don't like and things that are lovable and things that aren't. But sometimes we we tend to focus on the things that we don't like. We see more easily the things that are not lovable in ourselves or in others. And we find ourselves seeing with unkindness more often than seeing with kindness. 
And this tendency has the effect of feeding aversion in our hearts and it conditions fear and judging feelings of separation. But we can make a conscious decision to focus on the good in ourselves and in others. It's not that we pretend that we're perfect or that others are perfect, but it's a choice of where we put our attention. And a simple way to do this is to connect with the shared wish that we all have, that all beings have to be happy. This is common to all of us. And so just as I wish to be happy, so may you be happy. And there's something inherently lovable about this wish. At least that's my experience. There's a quality of real goodness in that. And so we can look, look there for the lovableness. And another way is to connect with, with suffering, our own and the suffering of others. And we know that just as we wish to be suffering, wish to be at ease, so too do all other beings. And so in either of these ways, we connect to something much larger, something that's a more universal than our individual lives and the, the mixed blessing that we find that we are when we look. Sometimes we can feel that, that we or maybe others are not somehow worthy of love, as though we must fix our tragically flawed personalities before we're worthy of love. But the Buddha never said anything about this. There's nowhere do we see the words to the effect, first fix your miserable little self and then abide pervading the world with all the all-encompassing world with loving kindness or, or first find someone who's completely without flaws or, and has no irritating habits and then practice loving kindness for them. Now, that's not in the teachings. And so if we think of this description, just as one would feel friendliness upon seeing a dearly beloved person, so one extends loving kindness to all beings. This is something easy to connect with. If we think of our, our friend seeing our friend or someone who's dear to us. And we don't, usually we don't demand that they be perfect before we feel this friendliness. You know, one of the marks of friendship is this quality of accepting. We accept our friends as they are. And when we see them, these feelings of warmth and well-wishing just arise spontaneously and naturally. We can't help it almost. Sometimes if we just bring them to mind, we'll see a, We'll feel a smile come to our face. We imagine our friend coming towards us. And these feelings arise, and it's not because this person is, is some embodiment of perfection. So when we make a dis conscious decision to focus on the good in ourselves and in others, we can condition this to become more and more the default way that we relate to others, relate to the world. And this really changes how we are, how we live. And if we look and see how we feel when we, relate, when we relate to others from kindness, from this spirit of connection and generosity of heart, 
and look at how others behave when we relate to them that way. Excuse me. We see that we feel good and that others feel good. And we usually find that the same kind of energy comes back to us. And so in this way, we can consciously create a field of goodwill and generosity in the world. Another way that we can connect with, with this quality of goodness and lovableness and kindness in ourselves and others is through feelings of gratitude. If we think of, of a kindness that we received or a kindness that we offered, and then feelings of gratitude come. And it's good to notice and, and to reflect on moments when we've received or offered a kindness. And these feelings of gratitude very easily flower into feelings of well-wishing and of metta. And acts of generosity also are the cause for the arising of metta. And in the act of giving often these feelings of warmth and happiness and well-wishing naturally arise, spontaneously arise. And I found for myself that when I dedicate the merit of my practice, of my wholesome actions, that this often very naturally leads to the arising of feelings of well-wishing of metta. And so by acknowledging the goodness that arises from our practice and and offering this for the benefit of others, this conditions these feelings of of love, of well-wishing. And the Buddha recommended that one reflect often on, on one's good deeds. And we can really gladden our hearts and minds with this kind of reflection. And it leads to feelings of loving kindness. And throughout the suttas, the Buddha placed a high value on developing metta and the other Brahma-viharas. This is from the Itivutaka. He said, bhikkhus, whatever kind of worldly merit there are, all are not worth one-sixteenth part of the liberation of mind by loving-kindness. In shining and beaming and radiance, the liberation of mind by loving-kindness far excels them. And just as whatever light there is of stars, all is not worth one-sixteenth part of the moon's. In shining, beaming, and radiance, the moon's light far excels it. And just as in the last month of the rains, in the autumn when the heavens are clear, the sun as it climbs the heavens drives all darkness from the sky with its shining and its beaming and radiance. And just as when night is turning to dawn, the morning star is shining and beaming and radiating, so too, whatever kinds of worldly merit there are, all are not worth one-sixteenth part of of the liberation of mind by loving kindness. In shining and beaming and radiance, the liberation of mind by loving kindness far excels them. I sometimes read this and I wonder why it's one sixteenth part. 
It's an interesting, it's very specific. So I think I'm actually going to stop here because I have a lot more. And this seems like a, a good place. So next week, I'll, I want to take a look at the words of the Metta Sutta in some detail and uh, go through it a bit. There's some lovely stuff in there. So I think I'll end tonight by offering you a short blessing chant. And then we can chant the uh, verses of sharing and aspiration. So this is just a very short chant. I'll do it in, I'll do Pali and English, one line of each, because it's quite lovely, I think. And it's short, so you can take it no matter what. Bhavatu sabamangalang. May there be all blessings. Rakantu sabadevata. May the devas protect you. Sabha Buddha Nubhavena. Sabha Dhamma Nubhavena. Sabha Sangha Nubhavena. Sadasoti Bhavantute. By the power of all the Buddhas, all the Dhamma, and all the Sangha, May there always be happiness for you. So I leave you with this wish this evening. And we can chant the verses of sharing together. I guess I'm skipping the part where we sit quietly and I ring the Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.